Our Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are a king who is a resurrecting king, that while we were dead in our sins and transgressions, you stepped off your heavenly throne to come into this world, not just to be a good teacher, but ultimately to redeem us, to resurrect us, because we were dead in our sins and transgressions. But through you, through your life, death, and resurrection, and through our trust in what you've accomplished, you promised to resurrect us, both here in this life, giving us new life here in this world, but also for eternity after we're done with life on this earth. We have that promise of being alive with you forever and ever. What, what promises these are, Lord? This is such a, an amazing privilege that we have of being able to know you, of knowing that death cannot hold us down, the trials of this life are not the end of the story. And Lord, now as we open the scripture, I pray that you will open our hearts to understand what is the appropriate response to this grace that you've given us. And so we pray that you will be our teacher now in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in the three years uh, between when I was in college and when I went to seminary, I was on staff with a ministry that's called Crew, and I served on the campus of North Dakota State University. Now, that was my first experience in vocational ministry. I'd been involved as a student for several years, both on campus and in campus ministry in my local church. But it's a very different ballgame when you go into vocational ministry, where that's what you're doing full-time. That essentially is your job. That's your main focus in life. And I will tell you that my three years on staff with crew at North Dakota State were incredibly beneficial. Now, one of the most impactful parts of my time there was being part of a very vibrant staff team. You can see a picture up here. The upper picture shows the entire staff team. Uh, We served on two different campuses uh, that were only a few miles apart. So the top picture is the entire staff team, but we still did a lot together. Then the bottom picture of four of us shows the staff team for those of us who served specifically at North Dakota State. And being a part of the staff team was so beneficial. I came in as the youngest guy, as the newest guy to vocational ministry, and I learned a lot from them. Now, one of the aspects of how I learned so much from them is that we were together almost every day. One of the ways we were together was that we shared an office together. We rented office space, and most mornings we would all be in the office doing preparation for ministry in the afternoon and evening. Uh, We would be having staff meetings at times, planning meetings. So we'd be in the office in the mornings. And then in the afternoon and the evening, we'd all kind of go our separate ways out onto the campus to do ministry directly among the students. But I will tell you that the time in the office was so valuable. We certainly could have worked from home. But if we worked from home and then just had the occasional staff meeting, I will tell you that the impact that the rest of those staff had on me would not have been nearly as great. Because there's something about rubbing shoulders on a very consistent basis, even a daily basis, that that builds a sense of camaraderie and teamwork, of support, encouragement, accountability. And all those things benefited me, and I believe benefited the team, and then therefore benefited the entire ministry on campus. Now here at Freedom's Church, we have a tremendous staff team as well. There you see our current staff team, five of us. And I I believe that, that a church supporting, hiring and then supporting a strong staff team is the most important investment that the church can make. And we are blessed with a very strong staff team here at the church. Now, did you know that the building project that we have coming up is going to significantly impact our staff team? 
Not just in having more space and better spaces for ministry, but also in terms of offices. Do you know how many offices the church building currently has? If you do the math, we have three. We have three offices currently. You see five staff up there. And at some point soon, we're going to be seeking to hire a youth pastor as well. So there will be six ministry staff. We have custodians and, and a bookkeeper as well. But they don't necessarily need an office here in the building. But that means six ministry staff. I only have five fingers here. Six. Six ministry staff for three offices. The question is, where is everyone going? Well, currently... Pastor Greg and Gentry are working from home. And we do our best to try to, try to build that sense of teamwork and camaraderie. We're together um, most weeks for, for a staff meeting for a couple hours. And, you know, we, we talk on the phone and we, we talk via email and, and texting. But that's not the same as rubbing shoulders and being face-to-face on a daily basis. Like we would be able to if we all worked out of offices in the church. And so one of the things in the building project is we're seeking to have offices for all of the church's staff. And realistically, in terms of hiring a youth pastor, we can't realistically start a search process until we at least have a timeline for when that youth pastor will be able to have an office. I mean, think about how that would go. Okay, we have a youth pastor who we're really excited about. We want to hire them. And realistically, in today's world, if there's a quality youth pastor that one church wants to hire, usually there are several churches who want to hire them. And so imagine I'm talking with someone on the phone after an interview process, and, and I'm like, yeah, we'd, we'd love for you to come to Freedom's Church. Would you come here and serve with us? By the way, will you be fine if you have to work from home? That's not going to go over super well. And so, I mean, we don't necessarily have to wait to hire a youth pastor until we definitely have an office. We can figure out some stopgap measures in the meantime. But it's at least going to be important that we have a timeline for when we'll be, be able to have an office for that youth pastor as well as for the other staff. And I'm, I'm excited about the opportunity for us all to be able to work here in the church and rub shoulders day by day, which will build a sense of camaraderie, a sense of teamwork, a sense of support for one another, uh, and also a sense of, of encouragement and also helping develop us as individuals and as a staff, which therefore will have a huge impact on our ministry as a church. So I'm excited about our staff team that we have here and excited about the building project as well. And the building project certainly will affect the staff and the ministry of the whole church. Now I invite you to turn your Bibles now to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Next week, uh, our, our Joyful Generosity series is uh, kind of shifting gears a bit. We have Thanksgiving coming up in just a few weeks. And so with Thanksgiving in mind... We're going to be focusing for starting next week and for the following weeks on giving thanks for God's joyful generosity. Giving thanks for God's joyful generosity. And we'll do that by walking step by step through Psalm 100. So that starts next week. Today we're wrapping up our current part of the series by looking at the heart that we have behind our giving. As I've said many times through this series, that joyful generosity is a form of of worship. And worship begins in the heart. Now the passage we're looking at today in 2 Corinthians 9 is a continuation of last week's passage in 2 Corinthians 8. And one of the reasons that Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians 
is to encourage them in a financial fundraising campaign that he had launched about a year before. In the, in the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul was encouraging the, the church in Corinth to take an offering, to begin to set aside some money in order to help the church in Jerusalem. Because the church in Jerusalem was a large church, but they were struggling financially. So Paul had this idea of, hey, the churches that are doing a little bit better, let's have them support the churches financially that are struggling a bit more. And so the church in Corinth had been all excited. Yes, we'll give. Yes, we'll give. They pledged to give. But a year passed. A lot of things happened. And they had not yet fulfilled their pledges. So one reason that Paul wrote the letter of 2 Corinthians is to encourage them to follow through on their commitment. Follow through on their pledge. And today he's addressing their heart. So I invite you to follow along 2 Corinthians 9 as I read verses 6 and 7. Paul says the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And so here the Apostle Paul is saying, okay, when we give, we should give cheerfully. Specifically, it says that God loves a cheerful giver. Now, the original Greek word there for the word cheerful is the word hilarion. Does that sound familiar to you? Hilarious. That's what it sounds like, doesn't it? So literally it's saying God loves a hilarious giver. And you may have all kinds of funny images come to your mind about a hilarious giver. But the bottom line is that, that Paul is saying, you know what, God is looking for us that when we give, that we enjoy that giving. That we have even fun while we give. It's the idea of joyful generosity. Now, as we dig into this passage further, we, we see that, God, uh, that Paul points out uh, two, two things that can prevent us, two barriers that can prevent us from giving cheerfully. Look with me back here to verse 7. Paul says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly. And so one of the factors that can prevent us from giving cheerfully is reluctance. Now, if we were to give reluctantly, that means that we might give, but we kind of have some hesitancy. We might have some remorse or regret in our giving because, you know what, even though we may give, deep down we actually wish that we could keep whatever it is that we're giving away. We, like, we want to keep it for ourselves. And this topic of reluctant giving doesn't just apply to finances. It applies to any other type of giving and serving as well. For instance, think about if you had a friend who called you up one day and said, hey, so-and-so, they need some help. Um, I'm thinking about going to help them. Would you, would you want to come join me for a few hours to give them a hand? Now, you could say yes with a couple of different attitudes. On one hand, a reluctant attitude in saying yes might say, well, oh, okay, I'm really busy, but I, I guess I can do it. You know, that person said yes, but did it reluctantly. Now, think about the other side, what a cheerful response would be. Sure, sure, I'm happy to help. When, when can I come? There's a big difference. There's a difference in attitude, a difference in perspective, a difference that, that really is indicative of what's going on in a person's heart. And, and so what we see is that if someone is giving reluctantly, they are sad to see go whatever they gave away. They wish they could keep it for themselves. 
It's like a little child whose parent tells them, you know what, you have that candy, you need to share that candy with your siblings. How often does a child share candy willingly with their siblings? Not very often. But they're still compelled to share it. And so they do it, but they do it reluctantly. They wish they could keep all the candy for themselves. I don't know about your house, if you have kids or if you've had kids. That's how it works in mine. Because you know what? We don't like to share. We want to keep things for ourselves. That's reluctant giving. But Paul says, you know what? We should not be giving reluctantly. And he also here points out another barrier in giving. Again, verse 7. He says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. I mean, think about the example of that child whose parent told them to share candy with their siblings. The child did so, did it reluctantly. Didn't want to. So why did that child give? Why did that child share? It was certainly not out of the goodness of their heart. The reason why the child shared the candy with the siblings is because the parents told them to. Essentially, that was pressure from the parents because the child recognized, you know what, there will probably be negative consequences if I don't share. So I need to do what my parents tell me to do, but they're doing it unwillingly. But there's this pressure. That's the idea of what it's like to give under compulsion. And sadly, many people, when they give or when they serve, they do it because they feel pressured. And sometimes that pressure comes from outside of themselves, externally. For instance, they feel this pressure to give. They're thinking, you know what, if I don't give or if I don't serve, what will people think of me? They might look down on me. Or there might be some other negative repercussions, especially in work or or, or in in a volunteer role that you might hold somewhere. There might be negative repercussions if you don't give or if you don't serve. Or you might look out and say, well, everyone else is giving. Everyone else is serving. And so you have this, this feeling of peer pressure that you know what, you need to fit in with the crowd. And so there's this pressure that you're giving, not cheerfully, but under compulsion. And churches sometimes struggle with this topic as well. Because, you know, there are some churches out there that publish a list of what everyone in the congregation gives. It happens. And so what happens then is it creates this pressure to give a respectable amount so that when people look by your name, they don't see that you gave little to nothing. So it's a pressure. Or sometimes in fundraising projects, there is a pressure that comes from, uh, you know, someone might present an ask to give to the fundraiser. But then in addition to asking, they follow up. There's a personal follow-up, a phone call or a face-to-face conversation saying, hey, did you give? How much did you give? Can I come by and pick up your gift? If you, I hope that you notice that in our capital campaign here at the church, I mean, you will be given a commitment card, but there's not going to be a personal follow-up asking you or hounding you, hey, did you give? How much did you give? I mean, there's not going to be a published list out there of what people gave. I mean, even the church leaders are not aware of what you give or do not give to the capital campaign. It's between you and God. So we want to present the need but we don't want to put undue pressure because, you know what, God loves a cheerful giver, not a reluctant or not a, a giver who gives out of pressure. So what we see here is that we are called to give cheerfully. And what happens um, if we are giving out of pressure 
is that we do it reluctantly. And again, some of those sources of pressure come from the outside, but for some people, the source of pressure comes from the inside, typically in the form of guilt. It's so easy to to feel guilty if, if we don't give or if we don't serve, if we say no to something or if we hold back something, we just feel this guilt. And for so many people, guilt is an incredibly power, powerful motivator. Frequently, it's, it's a primary motive behind what people do. But if we are serving out of guilt, for one, it's not honoring God because it's half-hearted at best. But on top of that, it's frequently going to lead to bitterness and resentment. And it's going to rob generosity of the joy and the beauty that should accompany generosity. So God loves a cheerful giver. So he wants us to give cheerful, cheerfully, with joy, with happiness, with, with a sense of freedom rather than compulsion. Now in this passage, Paul gives two caveats, two warnings uh, that can help us make sure that we don't get completely off course when it comes to cheerful giving. One is that cheerful giving is intentional. Look with me back to verse 7. Paul says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. So cheerful giving is not meant to be impulsive. Sometimes people hear an emotional appeal and, and they get all excited and they just want to give a ton. When they, suddenly when they hear that emotional appeal. I, I've read stories about celebrities. They hear an emotional appeal about you know, someone who's suffering somewhere, or a whole group of kids somewhere. And they think, you know what? I'm going to sell pretty much everything I have, live on much less than I'm currently living on, and give it all away. And what happens then if people act impulsively like that? It may sound really generous, but typically what happens if it's impulsive is that the gift ends up being accompanied by regret or the donor does not follow through. So when Paul is talking about cheerful giving, he is not talking about giving impulsively. Instead, he's saying, you know what? Decide in your heart what you're going to give. Be deliberate about it. Think through it. Think through what you're going to give along with why you're going to give it. Now we have to recognize that generosity at times does lead to significant sacrifice. I mean, it's been encouraging and inspiring just to kind of hear through the grapevine over the last few weeks uh, just various accounts of what people are considering, not, not in terms of dollar amounts for the capital campaign, but in terms of sacrifice. Considering putting off the purchase of a vehicle for a while, or skipping a vacation, or just looking at their monthly and weekly budgets, saying, okay, can I cut out this and this and this in order to be able to give a little bit more? Or giving gifts that make a significant difference in their retirement account. This, these are all sacrificial. But even though we give sacrificially, it should not be impulsively. Instead, it should be thought out and intentional intentional. I mean, that is an act of worship as we give with intentional sacrificial generosity. And so our giving is to be intentional. Now, there is another caveat as well in this passage. And it's, it's the idea that, that just because we give cheerfully, that should not be an excuse for giving miserly or meagerly or sparingly. Look with me back here to this verse again. Um, I mean, it says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So, so it should not be an excuse 
to give sparingly. I, I read a story about a mother and daughter, and they're, they're going to church one morning, and the, the mother gives the daughter uh, a dollar bill along with a quarter and tells the daughter before the service, hey, I want you to put one of those in the offering plate, but it's up to you to choose which one you want to give. And so this church service comes and goes, and on the drive home, the mother asks the daughter, so sweetheart, which one did you decide to give to the offering? And the daughter said, well, I was thinking about giving the dollar bill, but the pastor said that God loves a cheerful giver, and I, I decided that I would feel a whole lot more cheerful if I give the quarter instead. And you know what? That's what it can easily be. Of You know what? I'm going to be more cheerful if I give less, because then it's more for myself. Now, again, Paul here says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And so cheerful giving is designed to also be generous giving. And here in, in this passage, in that verse I just read, it's a farming analogy. That, that makes sense to us. I mean, even if we aren't farmers, we understand that the more seed you sow, the bigger your harvest will typically be. The less seed you sow, the smaller your harvest will be. Now the question is, what type of harvest is Paul talking about here? And if we look further in this passage, there are two different types of harvest that Paul's talking about. First of all, let's look in verse 10. And this is talking about the harvest in terms of the benefit that the person who gives experiences. Verse 10, Paul says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So when it's talking here about the harvest of your righteousness, it's saying that as we give generously and cheerfully, we will be growing spiritually in the process. There's a quote from a, an author named Randy Alcorn that says, It is impossible to become a fully developed follower of Jesus without also becoming a fully developed steward of your resources. There is a direct connection between discipleship and stewardship. And so as we give joyfully and generously and sacrificially, God is at work in our hearts to help us to grow spiritually. Now another benefit that we see in this passage of giving generously and cheerfully is how it benefits other people. This is another type of harvest. Look with me to verses 11 and 12. Paul says that as you give, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So Paul's talking about as, as the Corinthians give, and Paul and a handful of others will carry that gift to the church in Jerusalem. He says, through us, as we deliver that gift, you will create a harvest of thanksgiving to God. He says, for the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. And so what we see here is this idea that as we give to God's purposes, God's people benefit. The kingdom of God grows. People are, are worshipful and thankful to God for what God is doing and what God's providing. And so the harvest of giving generously and cheerfully is that it helps us to grow spiritually and it impacts other people as well. A few weeks ago, I shared a couple quotes that I think are very relevant in this case as well. One comes from the musical Hamilton. And it's the main character, Alexander Hamilton, near the end of his life. And he says, Legacy. What is a legacy? It's planting seeds in a garden you never get to see. So the question is, what type of legacy are we leaving with our lives? The best type of legacy is a legacy that helps future generations 
grow as followers of Jesus. And we can invest in that legacy not only through how we use our finances, but also how we use our time, how we use our talents, how we relate to others. Let's leave a legacy of helping future generations grow as followers of Christ. I also think of the movie Gladiator. Where in that movie, it's one of my favorite quotes, it says, what we do in life echoes in eternity. What we do in life echoes in eternity. So the question is, what type of echo do we want our lives to have? I don't know about you, but I want my life to have a deep, resounding echo indicating that I invested deeply in eternal things. Invested deeply in the kingdom of God. And so we see here, again, this passage where it's the idea of giving joyfully and generously. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now let's talk for our last few minutes together about how to grow in giving cheerfully. I want to give you three different things. One thing is just to examine your heart's attitude about giving. Examine your heart's attitude because cheerfulness comes from the heart. So examine your heart's attitude toward giving. Let me look at this from two angles. One angle is to examine, okay, where is my heart in terms of treasuring earthly treasures versus eternal treasures? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Instead, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the question is, where is our ultimate treasure? Because wherever our treasure is, that is where our heart will be devoted. Are we primarily focused on seeking earthly treasures or investing in eternity? So examine our heart and figure out, okay, what is our heart treasuring? Another aspect of examining our heart is, is just in terms of examining, do we have misperceptions about giving? Or do we have wounds and pain from the past I've talked with people through the years who, who have wounds and pain from negative experiences in the past, sometimes even with churches, when it comes to giving. It's important if you identify, you know what, you have some wounds or pain from giving in the past that's tainting your view of, of cheerful giving now. It's important that you process through those things, either with God or perhaps even with other trusted people, to help your heart heal and come in alignment with God's heart as revealed in Scripture. Now, another way to grow in giving cheerfully is simply to give in order to experience the joy of giving. Because, you know what, joyful generosity is something we typically grow into over time. Hey, think about if you want to grow in enjoying riding your bicycle. You aren't going to grow that much in enjoying biking if you just always sit on the couch and just think about it. At some point, you have to actually get out of the bike and ride. And as you ride, you're going to get better and you're going to enjoy it more. It comes through practicing it, through doing it. And it's the same thing with joyful generosity. And so one way to perhaps grow is just, just think about, okay, could I cheerfully give a bit more than what I'm giving now? And if you can do it cheerfully, then stand back and watch how God works in your life to give you greater and greater joy in giving cheerfully. Because we typically grow into joyful generosity. And finally... Final way to grow in giving cheerfully is to meditate in God's generosity to us through Jesus. Here in this passage, there's an interesting a statement in verses, uh, picking up in verse 13. It says, by their approval of the service, talking about the church in Jerusalem, as they look at what you've done, 
They will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all the others. And so what it's talking about here is this, it's a dense passage there. It's very complex. But it's this connection between our commitment to the gospel and our generosity. As we understand the depth of what Jesus has done for us, it compels us to be generous in sharing with others. And so meditate on how much God has done for us through Jesus. And Paul closes the passage saying, verse 15, Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. What is this inexpressible gift? It's Jesus. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And you think about what Jesus did for us. He sacrificed so much. We saw last week, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, that, that uh, remember the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. That's talking about spiritually speaking, that, that, that Christ did um, what he did. He sacrificed so significantly so that we could experience spiritual blessings and riches. Why did he sacrifice so dearly on the cross? Big motivation, in addition to seeking to redeem us, was the joy that came with redeeming us. Hebrews 12, 2 says, Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Why did he endure the cross? He was motivated by joy. I'm sure he did not enjoy the cross itself, but he was motivated by the joy that came as a result of what he accomplished on the cross. Our redemption and being back with his heavenly father in heaven. And that could be a model for us of sacrificing joyfully, cheerfully, in a way that honors God. And along the way, we grow and it blesses others. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you sacrificed yourself so graciously and so generously. Lord, I pray that that would be a model for us. It is so easy to want to hold on for ourselves what we think is ours, to want to benefit ourselves from the money and the possessions and the, the experiences and the talents and the time that we have. Lord, it's hard to give generously. But I pray that you will do a work in our lives, softening our hearts in the hardness that we want to hold on to things for ourselves. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on eternity, fix our eyes on Jesus who gives, gives us such an example of joyful generosity. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for that inexpressible gift that we could never earn or deserve, but was given to us graciously and freely. We pray these things in his name. Amen.